Okay, so this morning we'll continue on in our series on the topic of worship. And today I'll be speaking specifically on the element of singing in worship. And singing, I think, is an interesting topic because when you ask the average churchgoer um, about worship, it seems like they immediately think about the singing part or the music part. uh, And that's what worship is for them. Uh, and again, this is not a critique, but I think I think that perspective is incorrect, right? The uh, the element of singing is one out of many elements that are part of biblical worship. Um, and so, my hope today is to talk about that element. We'll be looking at um, more of a biblical background of singing, and then next week we'll deal with uh, some practical. Uh, application of how singing in worship ought to look like, um, and, and what are some of the wrong ways to approach it. Um, we'll also deal with uh, different questions, like the question of uh, exclusive psalmody, um, hymnody, and I'll also be dealing with uh, questions related to instrumentation, uh, musical instrumentation, and the use and functions of it. Uh, But again, this morning I want to focus specifically on the biblical background of singing as part of worship. Now, the the beginnings of Christian uh, praises or Christian singing go back at least as far as King David and and the worship in Solomon's temple. Now, uh, you'll see that temple praises was where it was really at. there were two major places in the temple worship where hymns of praise were sung. And the first was on entering the temple. When you're first approaching the temple, that's where you would first hear uh, about singing happening uh, in the Bible. Now, the second, I would say, was during the part of the worship where animals were sacrificed. And there was a singing uh, part in that in that uh, particular uh, part of the worship service. You also see, and you'll see this in the scriptures when you, when you read through the Psalms, that when people went up to Jerusalem, they would sing as they went to the temple. This was, this was a practice that they would do. Uh, and you see this especially in Psalm 121 and also Psalm 122, uh, which were probably first written for people that were on their way to the temple. I'm going to read Psalm 122, uh, verses 1 through 4, and listen to the wording. It says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, Jerusalem, build as a city which is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. You see, there, there's something captured there. There's um, uh, a joy uh, that the person who was on their way to worship in the temple, uh, this was being captured in that song and they would sing it. Another one is Psalm 84. You you get a vivid picture of people, you know, the singers of this psalm going up to Jerusalem to the temple. I'm going to read Psalm 84. It says, How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yeah, faints, for the courts of the Lord. 
Blessed are the men whose strength is in thee, and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. They go from strength to strength. The God of gods will be seen in Zion. And so this reference of Zion was a reference of God's uh, dwelling place. And again, this psalm just captures the joy and the praises of those who were on their way to the temple to worship. Now, another example is when David would bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uh, The Ark was accompanied by hymns of praise. Um, In fact, the usual way to approach Zion was with hymns of praise. That was the the, the way to approach uh, worship. Psalm 100, you can read it uh, and you can see uh, what I'm saying. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his, bless his name. And so, again, praise was happening. Singing praises was happening as people would approach the temple of the Lord. Now, what do we mean by praise? What do we mean by uh, singing praises to God? Well, it seems like it could be best defined as having that sense of awe and wonder which uh, which we would have as we enter the presence of God. And we, we would say the same thing uh, even in our current context with the church. As we're singing unto the Lord, what we're doing there is expressing a sense of awe and wonder as we are in the presence of God. And so that's what was happening uh, for those who were approaching uh, the place of worship where God himself would dwell. Now, when when the pilgrims uh, would approach the gates of the temple, the, the people that were journeying to the temple, as they were approaching it, there were uh, particular liturgical rites for opening the gates. Um, at least two psalms come, come to these rites. I, I'm thinking of Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. And when you add these psalms to Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah 7, you you get a clear picture of what happened during the ceremonial opening of the gates at at the time of worship. The people approached the gates, and they would sing a hymn of praise. Um, And the opening hymn of praise would chant God's glory and, and power uh, or it might greet or acclaim Mount Zion or, or the temple itself. And, and having arrived at the temple gates, um, one of the temple prophets, uh, I'm thinking Jeremiah, for example, uh, he would preach a penitential sermon, a, a sermon that was meant to lead people to examine their lives. And, and, and the purpose was for them to to think about themselves, examine their, themselves, and to begin to confess their sins. Uh, and this would happen um, right after uh, the songs of praise. So first it would begin with the song, song of praise as they enter the gates. Then the prophet would come out and preach, again, a, a penitential sermon, a short uh, sermon that would lead people to examine their lives and confess their sin. And so then enter the temple. Uh, And I'm reminded of Psalm 24, where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Again, that's Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. So at this point of the worship, after the people had confessed their sin, the prophet was supposed to intercede for the people. He would pray. And then the prophet bestowed on them, he would bestow on them a benediction or a kind of uh, assurance of pardon. And at last the people would cry out, lift up your, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And it was at that point that the gates were open and, and the hymns began again. People began to sing again. And that's where the people would enter the temple. So that's just that's a small picture of how the worship services would begin. Again, it began with singing on their way to the temple, then singing praises before the gates. Then the prophet would come and deliver a message that would cause um, people to confess their sin. And then there was an assurance of pardon. And uh, after they responded back, um, with with the phrases, lift up your heads, ye, O gates, and be lifted up, ye, everlasting doors. The gates were then opened, and then another hymn of praise would begin, and the people right there would enter the temple. So it's interesting, you see, you see that order of worship, and you see the purposes of the singing uh, throughout it. Uh, and it should be noted here, first of all, that the beginning of worship is always praise. That's how the service would begin. And then second, you can see that praise... Um, and confession of sin went hand in hand. So they would praise, and then they would confess their sins. And just as Isaiah, <clears throat> when he was in front of uh, the presence of God, uh, in, when he uh, had a vision of the Lord seated, seated at the throne, uh, if you remember that in Isaiah 6, that famous scene, <clears throat> uh, it begins where he's, caught before the seraphim singing holy 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 is the lord of hosts and then immediately after that isaiah prostrated himself on the ground and and he confesses right he confesses woe is me i'm a man of unclean lips and i dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips that's in uh, isaiah 6 5 and you see that same order of worship happening in that incident with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. And so it gives us an idea of, of how uh, praise and confession go hand in hand. Now, what about the Psalms? Well, it was during the, it, it was during the actual uh, burning of the sacrifices that the singing of the Psalms played, I think, its primary role. So while the sacrifice was being burned on the altar, a psalm of praise and thanksgiving was sung by the Levites as, as the one who offered the sacrifices themselves on the altar. Um, and, and that is that the worshipers would, would walk around, they would sing, and they would walk around the altar. They, they usually did it seven times. Uh, and they would identify themselves as the smoke of the sacrifice uh, ascended into the heavens. And so God was praised there at that particular part of the worship. He was praised and he was thanked for works of creation and providence. And that's where you see throughout the Psalms that kind of expression. And that was used during this particular part of the worship service. Um, and you'll see 
some of the psalms that were sung, they would capture the story of God's saving acts toward, towards Israel. Uh, often the story of election of the patriarchs, the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, their trials in the wilderness, and, and their possessions of the, you know, the promised land. All those things were recounted. And at other times, more personal acts of deliverance were described. Which, again, if you go back to the Psalter, you can see uh, Psalms uh, with that kind of description. And in those cases, the, psalm, the Psalms were a, a personal witness from the very worshiper himself. The Psalm told what God had done in the worshiper's life. Uh, and such a Psalm was like a confession of faith, but it was also a confession in the sense that it admitted to, say, the, the obligation which the worshiper now bore, right, by virtue of having received the deliverance and, and, and the salvation from God. So that's an idea of what, what went on in um, temple worship as it relates to singing and, and singing praises. Now, moving on in, in the later times, in the days of the second temple, you'll see uh, that a psalm was sung at the very end of the services. Seven particular psalm, psalms were usually um, what was used. Um, at that point, it was one for each day of the week. They would have seven particular psalms. Uh, starting with Sunday, these psalms were Psalm 24, Psalm 48, Psalm 82, Psalm 94, Psalm 81, Psalm 93, and uh, Psalm 92 for the Sabbath. And so the temple worship was understood to end with praise just as it began with praise. So the praises were sort of like the, the bookmarks, or, or sorry, the bookends of what went on in the second temple worship. Now, when the, when the temple of Solomon was destroyed and the Jews were deported to, to Babylon, the normal place of worship at this point came to be the synagogue. Now, this involved far more than just, you know, a change in architectural setting. A lot of things changed in, in the worship services. It involved two very different liturgies and two very different approaches to worship. So, so while the temple service centered on the sacrifices and things like that, the synagogue service centered on the study of the law and on the saying of the daily prayers. So it was very, very different. Because uh, again, think about it. The, the temple is destroyed. The, the sacrifices um, were, would not be the same. They, they wouldn't be able to perform these same acts of worship in the same manner, especially if they don't have the temple anymore. The temple was very much a part of the process of offering God those specific elements of worship, namely, you know, the sacrifices and things, things like that. So without all of that, they're left with this simplified synagogue worship service, which centered on the study of the law and, and prayers. Now the synagogue service never took over any of those sacrifice practices. They were specifically for the temple, but the, the synagogue did take from temple worship the psalms that had accompanied those sacrifices. So they would still sing the psalms uh, even if they related to some of the uh, sacrificial uh, 
you know, the sacrifice parts of the, the worship services. They would still sing them. And just when these psalms began to be used in the synagogue service, and, and just which psalms were used, it's not really clear um, what were the psalms that they used. But when the psalms were used in the synagogue, they were sung with no instrumentation, no, no, um, you know, no instruments that, that did the music for them to sing. It was just sung without any uh, instruments. And, uh, and that's very different from, from what was happening in the temple worship. But here's what we need to learn from what's going on here. It seems like in God's providence, God began his worship in a specific kind of way with specific instructions. And a lot of it had to do with exterior things. So you had specific instruction on how the temple design was supposed to look like, um, things like garments. Um, and all those things eventually got done away with. And in God's providence, the temple was destroyed. And you see that God was bringing his people through a transition of worship. Uh, he was removing certain things to now where we uh, see in the synagogue worship, a lot of that stuff was stripped away and it, it uh, reduced worship to something much more simple and spiritually focused. And, and you can see the wisdom of God in that. God was, in a sense, training uh, his people uh, to, to transition into a worship that was done in spirit and in truth as our Lord Jesus Christ uh, says to the woman at the well. And so it's important to, to, to spot that in the biblical storyline, what God is actually doing in worship and what he's trying to uh, bring us to so that we can better understand New Testament worship. Moving along, at least by the time of Jesus, uh, we know that the synagogue service included the singing of psalms. And uh, rabbinical sources from that time indicate that the synagogue worship began with psalmody. Uh, on weekdays, Psalm 145 through 150 were sung. And on the Sabbath, Psalm 95 through 100 were sung. And again, although the sources are rather late, we, we learned that the seven psalms that were sung at the end of the temple service were also sung at the end of the synagogue service. So you see, they did carry on certain patterns. Um, but, it, you know, nevertheless it's hard to um, get specific. We do know that the synagogue worship was much more simple. Um, the first Christians took over many of the worship traditions from the synagogue. So if you want to know uh, what Christian worship ought to, ought to look like um, or, or what exactly we model after, it's the synagogue worship, the simplicity of the synagogue worship. Um, and again, the early Christians did not take over, you know, the rich ceremonial aspects of the temple, but rather the simple synagogue um, service with its scripture reading, with, it, with its sermon, with its prayers, and specifically with, the, with psalmody, with singing the psalms. And, and just bringing this back to our key topic 
of, of that element of worship, specifically the singing element of worship, we see that what was practiced in the early church was singing the Psalms. And we find many evidences of this in the New Testament. Um, think of, I'm thinking of Acts 4, 23 through uh, 31. We, we read that the Christians gathered for prayer, and their prayer service began with the whole congregation singing psalms. And several times the Apostle Paul tells Christians to sing psalms. You see in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, Paul tells the church that when they are gathered together for worship, among other things, you know, they, they are to sing psalms. Now, the text actually reads, um, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a revelation. Uh, but this probably means that the whole congregation is to sing a psalm. What, what, what they had, what was brought from, um, from the worship before. But it may indicate also that the first Christians had uh, cantors, like, like they had in the synagogue. So uh, the cantor would sing uh, the text while the congregation would answer by singing hallelujah after each verse. Um, it definitely didn't mean <laughs> that they were to sing a solo. All that is not really in scope here. But, but we see in both Paul's letters to the Ephesians and in Colossians, we, we read of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so the psalms of the Old Testament were considered perfectly acceptable for Christian worship. Right? They were the songs of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the first Christians were particularly conscious of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their worship. It, it seems like, and, and we'll dig more into this later on, but it seems like the early Christians had a theology of singing that was closely tied to uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and they understood that it was the Spirit who inspired their worship in general. Uh, their preaching and their interpretation of the scriptures was the work of the spirits, the, the spirit crying out of them as they would preach, say the word. And in the same way, it was the spirit within them who bore witness that Jesus was the Christ, you know, the Lord's anointed. And it was the same Holy Spirit who moved them to praise. And so all the other elements of worship and all the other things that they, um, they did you know, as the church, they were convinced that it was, these were acts of the Holy Spirit. And so again, there's a strong um, connection to the Holy Spirit and uh, the, the specific acts of worship that they were to offer God. Uh, and specifically, this is true with singing. For example, Paul admonishes the Ephesians to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says right after that, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in their hearts. Uh, and so singing was understood to be a Holy Spirit thing. Uh, in the fourth chapter of Acts, we find another example. We read that the congregation lifted their voices together. And then uh, you see a line from Psalm 146 there. That's quoted. And after a few lines, you, you start to see Psalm 2 quoted there as well. But what's particularly interesting about this is that Psalm 2 is introduced by a benediction, very similar in the literary form to the benediction used to introduce the psalmody 
in the synagogue, uh, Acts 4.25, which says, The mouth of our father David, thy servant, did say by the Holy Spirit. And so, quite obviously, for, for the first Christians, this was important to consider, that when they sang the Psalms, the Holy Spirit was praising the Father within their hearts. And this is profound. That this is this is how they understood things. That when they sing these in, these inspired um, songs, the Psalms, right? They understood it that the Holy Spirit was praising the Father, but the people who were singing were the vessels or or the the um, the tools, if you will, to bring about those praises in a in a in a in a vocalized way. And so again, when they, when, when the Christians sang the Psalms, uh, it was understood that the Holy Spirit himself was praising the Father within their hearts because they're, they're singing the very words of God back to God. And that's the, that's the, that's the beauty of that uh, understanding. And <clears throat> again, the Psalms formed the core of the praises of the New Testament church. Now, with that said, it's also important to mention that the earliest Christians sang praises other than the 150 canonical psalms and the occasional uh, canticles uh, are that you find in the New Testament are evidence of that. Um, spe- I'm thinking specifically in the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke, we find a number, a number of uh, Christian songs. And uh, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that the early Christians would sing not only the Psalms, but the songs that are found in the New Testament as well. Um, Luke one forty six has the Song of Mary, for example. Um, and then Luke one sixty eight you see uh, the song of Zechariah. And then Luke 2, beginning in verse 29, you see the song of Simeon. Now, these are clearly Christian songs that are written in the literary genre of, of uh, the Hebrew uh, votive Thanksgiving psalms. Now, there's a sense in which these Christian songs are a completion to the Old Testament psalms, Right? Uh, these were New Testament songs that further clarified the content of the Psalter. And that's the, that's the beauty and, and the, um, the profundity, even, of having songs that are there in the New Testament. And, and that we're able to sing those as well. So, you know, we don't, we don't have to be exclusive uh, psalmist people. Um, but that we can look even in the New Testament and that there are songs that the early Christians sang. And these songs were uh, explanations or further clarifications and uh, um, uh, sort of like expositions even of what the Psalter um, would testify in their content. And even if you look in Revelation, there is uh, a song 
I'm, I'm thinking specifically Revelation 5.13, there's a song that's very similar to the song of Moses that you find in Exodus 15. Similar words. The only difference is that the way that it's sung in Revelation 5 is that they add the lamb or they add a reference to Christ. In other words, what, what's the principle that we gain from that connection? Well, that even though the Psalter and singing the Psalms is sufficient and, and we can be okay just doing that, that's perfectly fine. But you see that in heavenly worship, um, referencing Revelation 5, there were songs that uh, aligned with uh, Old Testament songs that further explained certain Christological realities. In other words, the principle that we gain from this is that it is perfectly acceptable to sing other songs that, that are not part of the Psalter with the purpose of adding further revelation or clarity or making connections, um, but still building on the foundation of the Psalter. And I think, I think that is uh, a good reason why singing hymns today, even though they're not part of the Psalter, is perfectly acceptable. As long as we keep in mind that the songs that were given to us by the Holy Spirit um, should set a foundation, not only of the content, but the theology um, that we ought to build on. And uh, that needs to be um, how we make our decision on what songs are acceptable and aren't acceptable. There can be songs that we can sing that aren't the Psalms, but that still build and connect with the Psalms. Um, and we see that even in the New Testament songs that we find there. The Psalter uh, should be understood as the primary uh, place where we find songs that we are to sing to the Lord. That should be the place that we go to first. There should be um, a priority to look there. And also songs of the New Testament, that we should sing scripture. But there was uh, the understanding that hymnody was acceptable as well, and it wasn't a violation of the regulative principle of worship. Um, it, it seems much more likely that the earliest Christians understood hymn singing as a sort of uh, elaboration, a sort of drawing out or commentary or, or even a, a sort of meditation on the canonical psalms and the cant canticles that we have there. So it, the key thing is if we are going to sing hymns, that's fine. As long as they're a kind of elaboration or a drawing out or even a commentary of what we have canonically um, namely the Psalms and the New Testament canticles. Uh, I, think, I think it's good to look at how the church did their singing. Um, what did it look like? How did it sound? Uh, and just fast forward, I'm thinking with Gregory the Great, uh, we begin to enter into the Middle Ages, and more and more it was the monks who were in charge with, of the uh, praises of the church, particularly in monasteries, but also it was the monks who, you know, were providing the music for the cathedrals. 
it was only at the beginning of the ninth century that the church began to use things like organs. Up until that time, there were no instrumental music uh, in Christian worship. It was all done by the voices. But again, in the Middle Ages here, through uh, closely in the ninth century, that's when the church began to use organs. And as the Middle Ages progressed, church music became more and more elaborate. It was the monks that um, really helped to develop Christian music during that period. First of all, they had the leisure, right? And the culture that, that, uh, that uh, was the monk life. Uh, and they used it well, I guess. Um, and it was during that time where you see the development of, of uh, you know, that traditional choral kind of Christian music that we're familiar with. Now, with the Reformation coming into the scene, the praises of the church took a whole different direction. The Reformers, they wanted the whole congregation to sing the praises of the church. And, and I think that's, that's very biblical, because you see the commands in the New Testament for the church to sing these songs, right? To sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so the Reformers rightly wanted the people to sing and they wanted the people to sing in their own language and in a simple way, enough for everyone to learn. Uh, this meant, practically speaking, that the production of music took a complete different turn. It, it, you see a, a vast difference between, say, the Gregorian chants and that kind of music uh, to what you get from the Reformation I'm just thinking of uh, Calvin's Psalter, famous Genevan Psalter, and the music that was um, used to create the tunes for how those psalms were to be sung. Uh, the style even was, was very different. Uh, and uh, uh, it was interesting to read how uh, lots, many of the reformers were really um, turned off by the liturgical music that came from the Middle Ages. There, there was a disdain there. <laughs> and I'm thinking even Erasmus, who was very sophisticated, um, um, he would, uh, Erasmus would rather hear no music in church than to hear the music of the monks. And this often happens to even the best of music. People simply get tired of it, right? And those who sing it get tired of it too. And those who hear it get tired, get tired of it. And so for us, we hear this beautiful choral music, uh, the Gregorian chants, and they sound beautiful and different and other, right? Uh, but for those in that period, uh, they were tired of it and um, were looking for a different direction musically um, to, to introduce to the church um, as a unique and distinct sound. Um, but again, this, this, is, this is a Reformation history. And they were successful in refreshing the sound of the praises of the church. Um, I'm thinking uh, the Reformed Church at Strasbourg. Uh, the city was well known for its poets and its musicians. And with the reform of worship, they quickly set to work in producing psalters and hymnals 
in the in the German language. And in, in the early days, it was the Psalms which received the greatest attention. They were trying to put the right tunes so that the congregation would be able to sing the Psalms. And, and we get, you know, wonderful sound from that. Um, uh, as we think of the Genevan Psalter of uh, 1542, which contained some canticles and, and catechetical hymns, but it was mainly the Psalms. And as the years went by, Calvin was able to get um, the finest poets and musicians not to not to um, emphasize the music itself, but to create um, excellent tunes for the congregation to learn so that they can sing the psalms. Um, and this Psalter is a classic, right? It provided the prototype of reformed psalmody for generations to come. Now, unfortunately, Calvin didn't follow the lead of Strasbourg um, in maintaining a balance between psalmody and hymnody, Calvin seemed to lean heavily on the psalms, almost as an exclusive psalmist um, kind of uh, approach. Even though he did have a few gospel canticles and certain catechetical pieces, but in, in the preface to the Genevan Psalter, Calvin gives a reason for prioritizing the Psalms as the music or the, the words in which we should offer our singing praises to God for. And I'm going to read uh, his introduction. Let me get that real quick. This is his preface to the Genevan Psalter. It says, The Psalms incite us to praise God, to, pr- to pray to him, to meditate on his works, to the end that we love him, fear, honor, and glorify him. What St. Augustine says is quite true. One cannot sing anything more worthy of God than that which he has received from him. And so, uh, the end quote there. Uh, but it's for this reason, Calvin continues, that, that no matter where we search, we won't find better or appropriate songs for our worship than the Psalms of David, right? Uh, And after all, these songs came from the Holy Spirit. They're Holy Spirit inspired. And so when we sing them, it is God himself who's putting the words in our mouth so that it is he himself who sings within us, exalting his glory. And I think that's, that's, that's profoundly true. And it's for this reason that Calvin tells us that Chrysostom, exhorts men, women, and children regularly to sing the psalms that in this way they might join themselves to the company of angels. Isn't that interesting? And uh, you notice that Calvin does not appeal to the authority of Scripture in this matter uh, in defending his preferences for the psalms when it comes to singing praises. Calvin appeals not only to Scripture, but to John Chrysostom and to Augustine. And this being the case that one can be sure that Calvin wasn't really objecting hymns. Um, He was just preferring the Psalms. So again, this was a matter of preference. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Calvin is saying. He's he's recognizing um, that you can't really find better songs than to sing that which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, at least in its original 
um, uh, signature, right? In, In its original form. Of course, we have translations of the Bible. I have an ESV here. Um, so in, in a sense, I'm singing a translation if I were to sing the Psalms. But nevertheless, I, you know, I agree with Calvin that there, if you're looking for songs to sing praises to God in the worship service, there's no better place to go than to uh, the Psalter or to the songs of the Bible. Now, what does that say about singing uh, hymns and songs uh, that are contemporary? Again, this is not to say that those aren't acceptable um, but it's to say that we, should, we shouldn't ignore psalm singing uh, and if you you visit a church in our modern world today um, it's very rare that you find churches not, uh, it's very rare that you find churches singing the psalms and, and you have to ask yourself why is that the case? why aren't we singing the psalms when the church has always done that uh, since the beginning and even even through the medieval period and uh, during the Reformation. You know, what has changed? Uh, why, ha- why have our minds changed about the music selection? Um, and so again, this is not to argue for singing the Psalms exclusively, but to recognize that we need to recover singing Psalms in our own worship. And uh, I can't talk about hymnody without uh, considering Isaac Watts. And again, I'm fast forwarding to 1700s, um, where we have the psalmody and and hymnody of the English-speaking Reformed churches, I think, experience a a revival under the leadership of Isaac Watts when it comes to um, a good balance of psalm singing and hymn singing. Uh, by, by the way, Isaac Watts was an English congregational minister who became sick. He had to retire from his pastorate in, uh, in London. But Watts wrote both Christian hymns and metrical psalms. He translated the psalms into English in a meter. With a, he would do it with a free hand, never, never shrinking from finding Christ right in the Psalter. Um, but, but again, the devotional quality of Watts's hymns, I think, is unsurpassed. Um, I think his best or his most remembered hymn is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, um, which was a, a, a meditation on Christ's passion, his, uh, his death. Uh, such hymns, I think, paved the way for a greater acceptance of Christian hymnody because it was done so well. Um, and it had the, it had that proper balance of um, of uh, a, a song that could be sung by a congregation, but that was deeply, deeply biblical and sound in its theology. And it exemplifies, I think, reformed, uh, doxological, worshipful, uh, reformed tradition at its best. Uh, we we find in in that work of his, uh, the work of Isaac Watts, a good balance between psalmody and hymnody. Uh, and so that's something that I, I want to definitely highlight. So uh, just some concluding remarks. Um, we should stop and think, what do we gain from everything that I, I just said? You know, we just considered the biblical history of singing in worship as an element itself. 
Uh, we talked about uh, church history, and we see uh, different examples of how the church have has sung in worship. Um, but but what's the what's the key principle here? And I think what we learn from all of this is that there is a priority of singing the word, uh, singing the word back to the Lord. And, and when, when we think about hymnody, it's singing the theology of the word. Um, because the theology of the word is the word, right? The content of the word is the word. The, the message of the word, if you will, is the word. It's the message that comes from God. And, and what we're doing when we sing to the Lord uh, as we worship together is we're um, allowing the content that was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, namely the Word of God, to dwell in our hearts richly so that we, uh, we sing them back to God, we offer them back to God. Now, the difference is that when they come to us, they penetrate us, right? When the Word comes to us, it penetrates our hearts. But what we bring back to the Lord is... Uh, the word in a way that has affected our hearts and, and that's what we offer to the Lord in praise. Um, it is being affected by the very word of God and singing them back to back back to the Lord. Um, it's offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Um, but what we don't want to do is offer ourselves as living sacrifices when we are not worthy to to offer those things when we when we, sing to the Lord things that are not true when we um, we sing content that is unbiblical. And so the key thing to faithful uh, singing in worship is to guard ourselves from a, a false kind of worship, which means that we have to guard ourselves from singing the wrong things, um, from having the wrong things dwelling in us richly, right? Um, we want the word of God to dwell in us richly so that that is what we offer to the Lord uh, when it's time to, to gather for worship. And so again, the goal is to always be filled by his word and to allow that to be um, what helps us um, for the time of, of, of worship, especially when it's time for us to sing to the Lord. That, that what we are filled with is his very word. And so again, that's a, that's a theology of this particular element. Next week, we're going to get into uh, more on the practical side. Um, I want to be able to answer some questions related to uh, psalmody, um, why hymnody is acceptable, and um, other questions related to the use of musical instruments. Uh, so again, we're, we're going to deal with more of the practical side on what this practice looks like or ought to look like biblically. Uh, with that said, are there any questions or comments? Yes.